I would like to recognise the traditional custodians of the land on which I am privileged to be recording this vodcast today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I would like to recognise their elders past, present and emerging. Welcome back to The Growth Distillery, everybody, and what an episode we have today. I'm here sitting with Lisa Ronson. Hello, Lisa. Hello. Uh, Where do I even start with introducing Lisa? This is the first time I'm going to read off my list here. Uh, So Lisa is the adjunct professor of marketing at Deakin, uh, the patron of the AMI mentoring program, uh, was Australia's most prolific marketer in 2021, CMO Magazine's CMO of the Year in 2018. APAC's most influential and purposeful marketers on the power list for 18, 19, 20, 21 and 22. Former CMO of the Coles Group, currently holds a host of board positions as well, including the AANA, BWX and Wheelchair Rugby Australia. So apart from feeling a little inadequate in such good company, (laughs) uh, I'm truly delighted that you've made the time to come and have a chat with us today. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Dan, and thanks for having me on. And I feel like 150 after yeah. that introduction. <laughs> I don't know how you find the hours in the day. Um, all right. So today, I thought, given given we have you in the room, I wanted to start our chat on the topic of creativity. Excellent. Uh, One of my favourites. I know, arguably the most potent weapon in the marketer's arsenal, yeah. uh, and arguably more important than ever as brands jockey for salience in 2023. But, and it's a big but, there seems to be growing rhetoric in market around a creativity drought or a lack thereof. Uh, We're hearing more and more, I'm certainly hearing more and more, um, that we're no longer putting in the time or or getting the management support to build brand equity and to take the creative risks um, that we need to to build salience within the minds of our consumers and that this uh, culture of measurement is, is killing creativity. Is this something that you'd agree with? You know, uh, would you align to this metric? What are you seeing play out at the moment in this space? Yeah, look, I think what you've said is is largely absolutely bang on. And I think there was an Adobe study just this year that said of all of the marketers surveyed, half or just over half of them didn't have the time to think creatively. Mm. Now, what that, what that means for me, and just and having a look around, you can see... Uh, the economic conditions and what has been looming for some time coming out of COVID, which was completely weird, and into this economic um, climate, I think as marketers, there's a fear. And it's it's an understandable fear. Mm. But when you look around, you see a lot of short-term tactical type communications and activity and ways to engage with customers um, and specific audiences. Now, there are some categories that are still doing it well, but mm. it tends to be the ones that have to take a long-term view because it's a very involved per, uh, purchase um, that they're making. Like the travel industry, I think, yep. is still doing a really good job. The insurance industry, I think, is doing a great yeah. job. Yeah. <laughs> um, particularly the the latest NRMA work, I think, is brilliant. The way that they're balancing the long-term and the short-term, I think they're getting it really right. Mm. Now, I think the issue in a lot of boardrooms is that... The conversation becomes about, particularly with non-marketers, brand versus tactical. Mm. And it's not a versus, it's mm. and. It's how how you balance both of them. And it depends on the category um, that you're in, the brand that you've got, the role it plays in customers' lives. Mm. We always have to remember that and keep that front and centre. So I don't think it's a versus, it's an and, and it's what percentage of 
both long and short term. And I don't know that a lot of marketers are getting that right at the moment mm. or a lot of brands are getting it right. And that's not a criticism. It's just an observation. And, and you're saying that the current economic backdrop is aggravating that dynamic. Because, Ab- I mean, this is yeah. something that we've seen for the last few years, you know, this shift to, to performative marketing. Yeah. yeah, it absolutely is. And to the point you were saying on performance marketing, and this is where kind of last click attribution comes into play mm. because everybody thinks that's the sales driver and the uh, more engaging, more emotive work, whether that be in any form and on any channel, is not a sales driver. Mm. We all know that every study that's been done in the world of marketing and beyond, mm. even by the really big consulting um, houses, is that when they're working together at the right percentage and in the right channels for that audience, that's when the sales and the growth comes. It's not mm. one or the other. Yep. You mentioned you mentioned channel. I think this is an interesting dynamic for us to talk to, which, you know, there's two, two I think, somewhat concerning shifts um, in my mind that I think creates tension, particularly when it comes to creativity and storytelling. The first, I think, is that, the, you know, the epicentre of advertising is continuing to shift to shorter and shorter form, right? You know, the 30-second spot that used to be the epicentre, shifting to Insta stories and, you know, six-second YouTube ads. You know, is, is memorable storytelling even possible when you're talking to moments that are six seconds long? And how do you leave an imprint in the mind of a consumer? Yes, is my answer. (laughs) It absolutely is. Is it easy? No. It's really, really hard. But it's really thinking about, again, the problem that you're trying to solve Mm -hmm. and the problem your brand solves in the lives of your customer and the role it plays in their lives to determine what you use the different formats for. So very rarely does a brand have one message and one message alone that Mm. goes across all channels. Those days are long, long gone. So in the example of even, say, supermarkets when they're talking about a whole lot of products, prices, but also solutions yeah. around, you know, the the dilemma of what's for dinner, using small, shorter formats to deliver up recipe ideas and inspiration can still be done. Mm. And they are, in fact, telling stories mm. that the customer wants to hear, and they're perfect for the shorter form. Now, if you're launching or brand repositioning, if your customers evolved or your brands evolved in some way, I still think some of those longer form um, are very useful in creating an impact relatively quickly and then using the shorter formats to support that. Having said that, it doesn't have to be matching luggage. It just has to have a thread of consistency through it so it's not confusing to uh, to the customer. I'd like to just touch on consistency again for a second because consistency of voice... um, was always a principle in building a brand story. Um, Not just one that resonates now, but one that lingers over time in the minds of our consumers. But to your point, has this explosion of channels and touch points impacted marketers' ability to to be consistent? Or or are you suggesting that consistency doesn't necessarily need to be the principle depending on whether or not you're trying to uh, reinforce an existing brand message or pivot towards one that might be new? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And I think to the point I was making earlier, what channel for what message is really clear. And so long as it's not completely schizophrenic, mm. most customers get that and they, they've they evolved as the channels have evolved. Mm. You know, we've all got smartphones and we all 
consume a lot of messages in our social feeds and things like that. So we are becoming a lot more adept at taking on a whole lot of different media and communications and messages and things like that. Um, the, the key to the point you're making is threading it together so it's not making the brand's problem and shifting it to make it the customer's yeah, problem. Yep. It's solving for that and understanding where the customer is on their journey um, and having that really deep insight around what you are trying to do and what you are trying to land. Mm. And you don't have to use all the channels all of the time. And, you know, in my um, university capacity, mm. it's one of the questions I get asked by so many students is, what is the best channel mix? And I always say, guys, there isn't one. And they get all sad, but it's true. There's yeah. not one silver bullet. It's an, it depends. It depends <laughs> yeah. on so many different yeah. variables, including the brand, the category, the economy, all of those different variables. And that's why I think it's always really important to work very closely in the insights and the data to understand what message, what channel and what time, what time of the day. Hmm. You know, things like that I think we need to get a lot more sophisticated at as, as an industry. Yep. We're going to touch on data and privacy in a minute, but you mentioned um, the Adobe 2023 study, and this is something that you mean you and I were discussing even earlier, that this lack of time being blamed for the, you know, the dearth of creativity. Have we forgotten the power, the incredible power of being bored? Um, are we all just too busy being busy? Yes. I, I, uh, yes. <laughs> we, I mean, and we all do. We're all guilty of it. Mm. We jump in an Uber. We sit down um, to wait in a, I don't know, doctor's office, straight with the phone, straight onto something. Mm. We don't give our mind a moment. Even when we go for a walk, we've generally got devices with us or, you know, AirPods in and, and that sort of thing. And there are so many studies to say that well, kids and adults, that if they're doing mundane things that are considered boring the next thing they do will be a lot more creative. Mm. So there's like thousands of studies that have proven that. And I think that m the moment of reflection that you often get in boredom, mm. that's where the best ideas can come from. Yeah. But um, you know, none of us are perfect. Yeah. We all do it. But yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for being bored a bit more. And, and you could argue that as the screws tighten on privacy and data protections, to your point earlier, that our ability to create differentiating story and narrative becomes even more important. Oh, it completely does. Because if in a world where we can't use the amount of data we want to be helpful, mm. that suddenly gets creepy to the customer, which is not the space that anyone wants to mm. be. And I think there's definitely um, a way that data and privacy can be used as a brand advantage yeah. rather than a disadvantage. However, having said that, the storytelling is always critical and that's, mm. we're human yeah. and humans like to tell stories and that's how we've evolved over so many years. Mm. On, on the topic of data, let's talk about the generative elephant in the room, ChatGPT. Yep. I'd love to get your take. Where do you stand on ChatGPT? Is this creativity's silver bullet? Is this the next horizon of marketing productivity? Is it 2023's NFT or, you know, brand litigation in waiting? My view is it would be the second option. I think it's all about productivity. I personally find it exciting. When I first um, started playing with it, I found it a little daunting. I think like most of it. Yeah. And you, you, you kind of gobsmacked. You go, what? How did that do that so quickly? 
But I think, and I was chatting to someone about it just yesterday at, at lunch. It was an old boss of mine um, from Westpac, and he had a really interesting perspective on it, that it is, it really is the next frontier. It's mm. the internet, iPhone, chat GPT. Mm. For the reason that, you know, economic growth, and the logic was very sound, as you would expect um, from this person, mm. uh, that economic growth comes from increasing productivity. And as marketers, if we can take some of those um, lower order value tasks that still take time away, that allows time for more creative thinking Mm. and also um, not an industry, that's not the right word, but a a craft in asking the right question. Mm. It's kind of like going back to writing the right brief. You get better outcomes if the brief is clear if you ask the right question you'll get a better outcome so I think that for me it's exciting um still a bit daunting uh given what it can do but I think the more productive we can be it it, to the adobe stat Mm. gives us more time to be creative yeah I think that's a I think that's a really powerful statement but it's not just chat GPT that marketers are dealing with these days, you know, and I think that between artificial intelligence, machine learning, you know, augmented reality, big data, predictive analytics, CRM automation, personalization, shoppable video, um, are CMOs needing to become CTOs? Oh, I think, look, CMOs definitely have to be curious and on top of the technology and work very, very closely with CTOs. That's always going to be a better outcome. Mm. Now, I think the key is um, putting them in all of those things that you mentioned. They can be put in different buckets, if you like. Mm-hmm. So what are the ones that are customer-facing? Shop, shoppable video. Yep. Is that important in your category with your brand? And how does that what, – what role does that play in solving the customer's problem um, or creating an opportunity? And then what are behind the scenes – back of house, if you like, which is the productivity stuff we were just talking to, you know, chat GPT. And then what is the stuff in the middle that's like artificial intelligence that can traverse both back of house productivity, but also what gets served up to a customer Mm. and then understanding very deeply what's important to the customer and what's more interesting to marketers that they might want to have a play with. I yeah. think that that's Need to the know versus nice to know. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So it all comes back to the customer and how you're trying to engage with that customer to get a better outcome, to get a better business outcome and change their behaviour. And so are you, do you see marketers being stretched beyond that that customer-centric view given just this, you know, proliferation of tools and, and you know, shiny new objects that, that we were asked by our business to understand and exploit. Yes, absolutely. Because, you know, um, it's kind of TikTok's a really good example. I think every executive family and kids were suddenly on TikTok and they were seeing some of those cool TikTok videos and it's like, okay, we need to get on TikTok. Why do, you? do we? Do you? Yeah. Do you? And, and then how do you? Yeah. Um, because if you don't have credibility to be there and to be saying what you're saying in that channel, yeah. then you're just kind of like dad at a disco a little bit. Yeah, I think Scott Galloway spoke about this, the TikTokification of everything. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And it, it's really cool. Like TikTok is amazing mm. for so many different things, um, but it's how to use it in relation to you know, other social media, what Instagram versus Meta and Facebook mm. and those, you just have to think about what the message is and is it right for that for your channel. Brand and as for well. your brand, yeah. absolutely, and for your customer. Okay, I'd like to go back 
to a couple of things that we were discussing earlier, um, but pivot towards leading teams mm -hmm. um, through these dynamics. Um, because I think it's really important, you know, as someone that is, you know, extremely experienced in leading large teams and, and influencing very sizable businesses, um, I'd love to give those listening in an understanding for your perspective on how you lead teams to novel thought, given there are all of these distractions, you know, some very real, certainly from the top down, others in terms of distractions around what's the data that matters most, what are the tools that really matter. Um, how, how would marketing leaders go about rekindling creativity in their teams at a time where I think you and I agree it's needed more than ever? Yeah, look, I think it's a, a great question and a really, really critical <laughs> Thank one. You. Um, leadership is the most important thing. And I think understanding and diagnosing what the, not only the marketing team, any team need from a capability point of view, because sometimes you'll find... Well, I've found personally in, in my own experience, you'll think, why is the team not doing more of this and less of this? Mm. And there could be a really big capability issue. Mm. They might not have had any training in, you know, how do you write a good brief, you know, to a media agency or a creative agency or what does good look like? What are some great case studies that shows a balance of short and long term that led to measurable business growth? What metrics are the important ones to look at depending on what the brand is, what the brand purpose is, what the growth targets are, what, you know, all of the business metrics, mm. then that can lead to what metrics you look at day to day, which ones you look at week to week, month to month or quarter to quarter. Yep. So it really, in my experience, the leadership is in the capability and making sure the team have the capability and also making sure that they stay curious and feel safe to ask a question that they might feel is a dumb question because that's when you understand and you can diagnose what you need to do and what specialist skills you need to bring in to help them keep keep them current and keep them growing. Mm. So there's a couple of items I'd like, I, want, I want to talk to there. First being, um, you mentioned the short-termism, right? Balancing the long and the short. You know, I'd love to get your your take on what marketing leaders can put in place to insulate their teams from that short-termism. How do you find that balance and, and what are some of the, the artefacts and the ceremonies that you've seen work really well um, in organisations that you've led? Yeah, it's, it's giving them the data and the information to have the debate. Yep. Because if they're sitting in a room with someone that may have been in the company industry for a really long time and have quite rusted on views about to the point I was making before around... Um, brand versus tactical, mm. you need to give them the information so that they can just give some stats, preferably on campaigns or programs that have run in your particular organisation to say, well, when we got the balance of this between 60-40 right, it led to a market share increase of X and sales increase of Y, mm. and just give them a few of those things just so you can disarm the other person and their very strong view to have a conversation yep. because it's very hard to have a conversation when someone states what they think is a fact mm. and then to try and argue with that fact is really difficult. Yeah, walk them back from there. Exactly. Yep. Get them somewhere in the middle so that you can have the conversation. We touched very briefly at the beginning and, and I think you, you reiterated it then this, this idea of risk aversion. Yep. Um, and, you know, certainly in the, as part of that Adobe study, there was, um, there was a lot of rhetoric around lack of support from management. Mm -hmm. But 
it begs the question. I mean, it's easy to blame the corner office um, yep. for these things. You know, do you think that there's also an element of us filtering ourselves? You know, is it is there an apprehension these days to be you know the marketer or the person that that came up with that big and bold idea on on the in case that it's the one that becomes the learn and not the win? Uh, yes, it's scary. It, it's really scary, and that's why when one question and I'll sort of repackage it back to if, if, yeah, you, if you don't mind. One of the questions I also get asked from students and also from team members is, how do you sell an idea to a board? Mm. And if you've got a formula and a way to do that, then you can sell it to the corner office, your colleagues, people that you work with, collaborating with um, partners and things like that. Mm. And that is, what is the problem you're trying to solve? How are we going to solve it? And what will the outcomes be and when? So oftentimes what happens is you do a new in initiative, the you know finance community want results the next day, and so managing expectations that, okay, we might start to get social engagement first. We'll see that start to uptick. Yep. Then the brand health measures will start to improve, and then the sales will come. Um, in some industries, and in some industries, the sales will come, and then the other metrics and the reputation will come later, yeah. depending again on the brand and what category you're working in. And I think managing those expe expectations helps it from going, well, we tried that and it didn't work within two days of something getting in front of a customer. Yeah. So I think it's the, the formula and the way that you sell it in to and manage those expectations. Exactly. On leads. Yeah, yeah, that's so, so important. While we're on the topic of filtering um, and building playbooks to sell things, uh, I'm always really conscious about uh, what is a growing epidemic of curated identity. Mm -hmm. um, we explore this you know, across a raft of consumer segments, particularly younger Australian audiences, where this is becoming quite concerning as a, as a trend. Um, but equally, our professional personas are starting to seem equally sculpted these days. Um, I'd love to, again, to get your take on, you know, what you're observing, you know, similarly, how do I sell an idea to a boardroom? Are you seeing similar questions asked, how do I sell myself to an industry? I thought you might go here, Dan, yeah. based on some of the conversations that we've been having and some of the things I've said publicly around, and I'll try and unpack it so I don't yeah, sound like I'm just like no. a sledgehammer here, but we I like think, bulls in china shops. I think uh, the whole the whole notion of personal brand is bullshit. Okay. Because I think, and there's a quote from Cheryl Sandberg, if I can, I can read it, so I don't get it wrong. When we're packaged, we're ineffective and inauthentic. Her advice: don't package yourself. Now, for me, reputation is so much more powerful and important than personal brand. Because to me, personal brand does conjure up the the notion of not necessarily being yourself, mm. trying to be someone else. And as I've said many, many times to all of my teams and anyone that will listen, mm. trying to be someone other than yourself is exhausting and you'll be really shitty at it. Mm. And so I think how you treat people, how good you are, are at your job and how you treat, you know, others around you that might not be as fortunate as you and those sort of societal mm. issues, they make a good reputation. It's an output mm. rather than an input. And I, I worry when, um, uh, when people, to your point, are constructing it as it's an input. It's not. Mm. People will either think that you're a good person, great at their job, 
good operator, whatever the terms might be, they're other people's words, not you giving them the words, if that yeah, makes yeah, sense. Makes I think sense. that's more important and more powerful. And I think that um, that for me is so – it transcends that kind of personal brand stuff, like in like – so much. Mm. I find it interesting because consistency, authenticity, sort of depth of character, you know, these are foundations of great brands. I mean, that's brand marketing 101. But these tenants seem to go out the window when we talk about branding ourselves. It's how do we flock yeah. to the topic of the moment? Uh, 100% right. And I think one of the, whilst COVID has been so difficult and so challenging in so many ways, and it has been so awful in so many ways. I think one of the benefits, well, a couple of benefits, flexible working. I've always been an avid believer of flexible work, like true flexible working. Mm -hmm. The other is showing your true self because it was really hard to put on the kind of army suit and go into the office and pretend to be someone else when you're sitting at your desk or at your living table and your kid comes over and says, I want to go to the bathroom or the dog's barking or, you know, your partner's too loud in the background. That's my personal one. Um, People had to let their guard down and just be themselves. That was the part that I loved because I don't like the notion of us having a home self and a work self. Now, everyone chooses to work differently, whether they want to compartmentalise or mix it all together. That's entirely up to them. But it's not, I don't think, genuine to put on the armour, come to work and behave in ways that you wouldn't in other aspects of your life. Yes, we have to do different things in different parts of our lives, but we're the same person. Mm. We're not changing that personality and having two faces, I don't think. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. You mentioned flexible working. I think that there's a rabbit warren we can go down there. But before we do, for those then that that are building their careers, right, yeah. that are at the other end, that are, that are nowhere near as established as, as, you know, yourself and the people that I'm, I'm very privileged to be able to talk to on, on the vodcast. How then do you go about marketing yourself and getting your name out there in an authentic and a, you know, uh, a character-aligned way? I think, well, for me, it was always about um, networking in a positive way Um, being curious about other people and their lives and asking questions and getting to know the people that you work with, the partners that you work with um, on a more personal level. Mm. And then, you know, if you need a favour, they need a favour. Actually, a piece of advice I got when I was leaving Carlton United Breweries and I was going to Visa to be the marketing manager, I was terrified. I'm not going to be able to do this job. All those doubts come into your mind. And one of um, the brand manager at the time, he said, Lisa, just remember, you can, if you're in a pickle or a bind, you can just call any of us and say, have you been in this situation? Have you got any advice for me? Mm. And when you do that, that is a great form of, you don't think of it as networking because it's not, but when someone helps you out of a bind, you've got a suddenly different dynamic already there. Mm. So I think asking for help, showing that you're vulnerable being a decent person yeah. and treating everyone like you want to be treated, it's the simple things I think that's a that fabulous piece of advice. ahead, I think, in my experience anyway. So you, you mentioned a critical ingredient in that, which is getting to know your colleagues. One of the things I'm always really conscious of, particularly with more junior 
professionals who are building their career is the impact of, of fully fluid and f- flexible working on the capability to do that, right? Yep. Yep. Um, you know, certainly when, when I was starting my career, it was those chance encounters walking yeah. the halls. It was me- being introduced to someone that was in a, t- a team completely or nowhere near adjacent to mine. Yep. Um, are you worried that in our in our swing towards fully fluid work, you know, ways of working, um, that we're making it that little bit more difficult for those chance encounters. You know, I see too many young professionals just interacting with their immediate team, yeah. if that. Yeah, I, I do think it's a problem, and I think that's why in flexibility we need to design the space and the opportunity to have those offhand collaborations, mm. whether that be setting a, without being uh, draconian about it, setting some days in the office, whether it be two or three days, um, these hours, so if people want to drop off kids and pick them up and those sorts of things, that's Mm. that's totally fine. And also creating the social interactions and making sure that whether it be off-sites on a Thursday or a Friday where everyone can get together and have, you know, some food or, you know, some drinks or a laugh afterwards, go to the pub, um, go out for a restaurant meal or something like that. So it's making sure that we've got enough of the things that we used to do, yeah. you know, to build our careers and to build relationships that are still there mm. so that it's not all on a screen and it's not all from home because that is really, really hard. And do you Have you found that creativity has become more or, or less challenging, you know, when you've got teams within a room and then you've got half the team virtually? You know, to, to sort of close yeah. the loop to what we were talking about at the beginning. I, I do think that's hard. I think... It's either when you're doing – so, okay, a good example is um, when you're doing those big planning days where you've got um, tens or hundreds of people, mm. I find it's best it's all either all virtual or as much in person as we can because yep. when you're one of maybe 10 people on a screen and there's 100 people in a room, that's really hard. It'll, mm. t- it'll take twice as long to crack the nut you were trying to crack when you're doing it that way. So I find it's easier to get everyone together in the room or have it all virtual or do one day when everyone's together in a room and then the next day virtual, which is, you know, the follow-ups and the action items yeah. and things like that. So uh, the hybrid for me in a creative sense doesn't work. In meetings it can work. You just need some rules to make sure that the people on the screen feel like they're part of the conversation. Sage wisdom. Okay, so Lisa, as we get to the back end of our our illuminating chat. Um, I like to get my guest's perspective. You know, we call this through the looking glass. Mm-hmm. Um, what would your three rules be for brands looking to sustainably grow over the coming year in the context of what we've been discussing today? Yep. Number one, understand your customer, the role that you play in their lives and the problems that you're trying to solve for them. Understand how you're going to grow the business, what are the key levers you need to grow the business? And the third one would be no creativity by consensus. Sometimes you have to stick your neck out. And for really great ideas, and if you know they're great and you've researched them in whatever form, you have to stick your neck out a bit sometimes. Uh, as, as uncomfortable as that is. I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, we had James Leggett here talking about bravery for brands uh, earlier in the series. Well, he's a very good one to talk about that, actually. Um, And a word on what this doesn't look like. 
for those that may misinterpret your three rules? It doesn't look like filtering information, customer information, because it's hard or difficult to share. Ooh, I like that. Yes. There's been many, many occasions in my career where I've looked at something and gone, oh my goodness, is it that bad? But you have to share it and you have to share it unfiltered, but not just lob it on the table as a problem. And this is how we're going to solve for that so that we can turn it around. Brilliant. Lisa Ronson, thank you so much for coming and joining us on The Growth Distillery. It's been an absolute delight. What's well, been my absolute pleasure. Thank you, Dan. You're very welcome. <laughs>